1: Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolf. This week we have a special Ig edition where we look at the Ig Nobel awards given out by the Annals of Improbable Research. But first up, here's the news. Bitcoin for food. Wired reports that an American homeless and unemployed man is earning Bitcoin and exchanging it for gift cards he can spend on food. He visits a park with free Wi-Fi, where he uses a laptop to watch YouTube video ads on Bitcoin Get in exchange for Bitcoins. He gets free electricity from the Pensacola Library. He can earn 40 Bitcoins per video he watches, which is about half a US cent. He's only allowed to watch 12 videos a day, so he can earn 6 cents this way. That's a dollar every 17 days of videos, or nearly $2 a month. Basically, he's selling his attention to advertising in return for fractions of a cent. The Wired article says he's making about $100 or 1 Bitcoin per month, but at a cap of 6 cents per day, he's not getting it from Bitcoin Get. He's also doing odd jobs for people, and getting paid in bitcoin instead of cash. He feels it's safer than carrying cash on the street. It's a lot harder for him to be robbed. It's less embarrassing than begging for cash, which would also be illegal in Pensacola. Unlike a bank account, bitcoin doesn't require you to have a street address or a photo ID. Once he's earned his bitcoins, he can exchange them for gift cards using an online gift service. This means you can order food online and have it delivered to the park. A Pensacola charity to help the homeless, called Sean's Outpost, asks for donations to be made in Bitcoin. They build houses and make meals for homeless people, employing homeless people in the process. They're also training people to build homes for the homeless. Since accepting Bitcoin donations, the charity has been receiving donations from around the world. You can donate your Bitcoins to seansoutpost.com. The tricorders are coming! In Star Trek you could point your tricorder at some food to tell you whether it was good to eat, or at almost anything to tell you something about it. The Fraunhofer Institute of Photonic Microsystems have demonstrated a spectrometer that you can attach to your mobile phone to test things, including food, using infrared light. A spectrometer looks at light from a source and breaks it up into its individual wavelengths to recognise different patterns that can give information about the nature of the source. For food it might be how much water and protein there is even if the food is wrapped in plastic as long as it is transparent plastic. You could point the device at a piece of fruit where it would bounce an infrared beam from the fruit to tell you whether it was ripe or rotten. The spectrometer is based on a micro electromechanical silicon chip which makes it cheap to mass-produce, and the whole device is just the size of a sugar cube. Spectrometers can analyse the composition of solids, liquids, and gases, and the usefulness of the device will only be limited by its database of materials. It could be used to detect date-rape drugs in drinks, raw materials in factories, or the quality of oil in an engine. They expect to have the spectrometers on the market in five years, and eventually every phone and wearable computer will have one built in. Just don't go looking for life signs. Willpower depends on your imagination. Previous studies have suggested that willpower is like a muscle that wears out with use, or that it's like a muscle that's only replenished with sugar. A team from Stanford and Zurich Universities have found that your belief about how your willpower is depleted or replenished matters more than how tired your brain is or when you last ate. The terrible thing is that once you know this, you no longer have an excuse for not making the best decision. And the wonderful thing is that your willpower never needs to run out. Willpower is the ability to do something you decide you want or need to do, even if you don't feel like doing it in the short term. It may be for a greater or longer term reward like your health, or the greater good, or simply a greater payoff like more money. Previously people thought that because your brain runs on glucose, and your brain has to work to exert willpower, it's inevitable that your brain runs out of willpower when it runs low on glucose. But they were wrong. The team asked a group of volunteers to go without food or drink for two hours. Then they quizzed the volunteers about their beliefs about willpower. After the questionnaire, they gave the volunteers a sweetened drink. Half got sugar, and half a drink sweetened with a sugar substitute. Each group was tested for self-control and brain acuity and the placebo effect reigned supreme. The people who believed they needed sugar for their willpower did badly if they drank an artificially sweetened drink. Those who believed their willpower was unlimited performed equally well regardless of which drink they had. In the first task, they're asked to complete a mentally challenging exercise, such as crossing out certain letters in a passage using complicated rules, followed by a second task where people had to resist an impulse, such as reading the name of a colour written in a different coloured ink, such as the word green written in red. This is the Stroop test. Those who believed they had limited willpower got tired after the first task and did badly on the second task unless they received a sugary drink where their performance improved. Those who believed willpower is abundant did well on the second task and were unaffected by the sugar. In a second experiment with a fresh group of people, the psychologist changed the words in the questionnaire to suggest that willpower does need refreshing. Those who were convinced did badly, whereas those who were nudged to believe their willpower wouldn't run out didn't need the sugary drink. People's beliefs shaped their behaviour. In the third experiment, inevitably, they lied to people about whether the drinks were artificially sweetened or not. You knew that had to happen. It's psychology. Interestingly... People who believe that their willpower needed a boost from sugar did not get an improvement when fooled by an artificially sweetened drink. This may be the reason previous researchers formed the wrong conclusion and missed the connection between people's beliefs about willpower. Why didn't a belief in drinking sugar have the same effect as actually drinking sugar? The researchers suggest that people who believe they need to husband their physical resources before they run out of willpower are experienced in sensing their blood glucose so they're paying more attention to the signals from their body. Are they tired? Are they hungry? Do they need a boost? These are important things if you feel you're about to run out. So they've learned they can't work without being replenished, even though that doesn't have to be the case. Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck is taking the study further by teaching preschool children that willpower is a self-generating thing. The longer you wait and the harder you try, the more you can do. So far it seems effective. The gift of untiring and ever-growing willpower. Imagine that. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the community radio network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, this year's Ig Nobel Prizes. Nobel Prizes make you go, ah. Ig Nobles make you go, ha. The Ig Nobel Prizes are awarded each year for discoveries and inventions that first make you laugh and then make you think, by the annals of improbable research. The 1999 Ig Nobel Peace Prize went to the inventors of cars with flamethrowers attached that were used to prevent carjacking. The 2005 Ig Nobel Prize for Chemistry was won by the team who proved that swimming in syrup is as quick as swimming in water. Cows with names gave more milk than nameless cows, a discovery that won the 2009 Ig Nobel Prize in Veterinary Medicine. Isaac Asimov once said, The most exciting phrase to hear in science, the one that heralds new discoveries, is not Eureka, but that's funny.
2: All right, now let's get it over with, ladies and gentlemen, the awarding of the 2013 Ig Nobel Prizes. We're giving out 10 prizes. The winners come from many nations. This year's winners have truly earned their prizes. Karen, tell them what they've won. Thank you, Cupcake. This year's winners each get an Ig Nobel Prize. What else? A piece of paper saying they've won an Ig Nobel Prize. (laughs) It's signed by several Nobel laureates. Uh Do they get any money? 10 trillion dollars. 10 trillion dollars? 10 trillion dollars! 10 trillion US dollars? Zimbabwean dollars. (laughs) A Zimbabwean $10 trillion bill. Mm -hmm. How nice. Thank you, Karen.
1: Here's this year's awards. The Medicine Prize went to Masateru Uchiyama and his team for assessing the effect of listening to opera on heart transplant patients who are mice. The paper was titled... Auditory Stimulation of Opera Music Induced Prolongation of Murine Cardiac Allograft Survival and Maintained Generation of Regulatory CD4 Plus CD25 Plus Cells and was published in the Journal of Cardiothoracic Surgery. Mice who had heart transplants and were played a CD of La Traviata had their transplants stay healthy for 26 days. Mice who were played a CD of Mozart had their transplants stay healthy for 20 days and those played Enya or a pure sound frequency tone, survived only 11 days or less. So listening to opera was more than twice as good as Enya. Not only did the mice listening to opera live longer, mice with heart transplants that included a graft of immune cells from the mice who were opera fans also lived longer.
2: Please welcome Masaturu Uchiyama, Xiang Yuan Jin, and Masanori Niimi.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much. Tonight is a great honor for us and for all the persons who are interested in brain and immune system. Using mouth heart transplantation model (laughs) into the abdomen, we did show the force of music. A famous opera, La Traviata, generated regulatory cells and prolonged graft survival. We say, we hope and we believe the, our improvised results are immediately used for clinical and our life and make people laugh and then sing. Brain can control immune system. I have to say, thank you to my wife and my daughter, to my parents. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.
1: The psychology prize went to Laurent Begue and his team for confirming by experiment that people who THINK they're drunk, also THINK they're attractive. Their paper was titled, Beauty is in the Eye of the Beeholder. People who think they're drunk, also think they're attractive, and was published in the British Journal of Psychology. Their first study confirmed, in a bar, that people who drank more alcohol rated themselves as more attractive than before they started drinking, and the more they drank, the more attractive they felt they were. In the second study, the psychologist lied like good psychologists do. People were given a fake taste test, with half given real alcohol and half a placebo, and with half the drinkers and half the fake drinkers each believing they were drinking real alcohol. They were next asked to give a speech, and then rate how attractive, bright, original and funny they thought they were, while their speech was recorded and rated by 22 independent judges. People who believed they'd drunk alcohol thought they were more wonderful than than the people who thought they were drinking soft drink. Ratings from the independent judges showed that the alcohol drinkers were not better than the soft drinkers. The joint prize in biology and astronomy went to Murray Dark and her team for discovering that when dung beetles get lost, they can navigate their way home by looking at the Milky Way. The paper was titled Dung Beetles Use the Milky Way for Orientation and was published in Current Biology. They actually put the African dung beetles in a planetarium and found that they could navigate in a straight line equally well whether all the stars were visible, or only the Milky Way could be seen. But they got lost when it was overcast. This is the first evidence of insects observing the stars, and probably of insects in a planetarium navigating.
2: Please welcome Marie Dack, Emily Baird, Marcus Byrne, and Eric Warrant.
3: Some people think science is crap. Some people think even our science is crap. But this crap, in this case, is a vehicle to discovery. Dung beetles roll
1: balls of poo. Hello. We explore how a sky compass works by watching dung beetles roll balls of poo. And ask, how?
2: We ask everyone to raise their eyes from a dung patch to the sky. Here, a lonely nocturnal wanderer finds guidance. Seen through the eyes of beetles, the African moon and the stars leads the way to their success.
1: Success! success! <laughs> Hats on beetles and planetarium shows tell us how all creatures, great and small, avoid getting lost in the dark. The clever compass um, uses the stars, the bright stripe of light in the Milky Way. Milk! Milk!
3: (laughs) South African dung beetles teach us that to do good science, you've got to have... Balls! Balls!
2: You can collect your $10 trillion from the Nobel laureates here.
1: The safety engineering prize went to the late Gustano Pizzo for inventing an electromechanical system to trap airplane hijackers. The system drops a hijacker through trapdoors, seals him in a package, and then drops the encapsulated hijacker through the airplane's specially installed bombay doors. From there, he parachutes to Earth, where police, having been alerted, await his arrival. The ignoble Physics Prize went to Alberto Minetti and his team for discovering that some people would be physically capable of running across the surface of a pond if those people and that pond were on the moon. The paper was titled Humans Running in Place on Water at Simulated Reduced Gravity and was published in PLOS One, the Public Library of Science. The team adapted the mathematical model for a basilisk lizard running across water, to a human being running across an inflatable wading pool, with small fins. The basilisk lizard is too big to use the surface tension of the water in the same way that insects like water striders do, so they need a different strategy to run across the surface of the water in the way they do. What basilisks do is they strike the surface hard and fast enough at 8 times a second to generate forces in the surface of the water, splashes, if you will, to support their weight. There's a positive pressure on the downstroke of the foot, a negative pressure on the lifting of the foot, and drag from the water along the sides. These all add up to support the basilisks on the surface of the water. Humans are too big and weak to do the same. Humans would be able to run on water only if they're able to slap water at speeds faster than 30 metres per second, which would take 15 times more muscle power than any human has. But there are two ways of getting around this problem. One is to reduce gravity, and the other is to use Leonardo da Vinci's idea of wearing big, finny shoes. At even 10 metres per second of running steps, humans still need fin-like shoes a metre wide to keep them from sinking. But with small fins and reduced gravity, maybe. So they inflated a waiting pool, had a man wear small fin-like shoes and a special harness to reduce his weight to what it would be like in reduced gravity. They discovered that for a man wearing fins, running at 2 metres per second, on the moon, with its gravity of a sixth of the Earth's, a man with a mass of 73 kilos could run on the surface of the water and not sink. The ignoble chemistry prize went to Shinsuke Imai and his team for discovering that the biochemical process by which onions make people cry is even more complicated than scientists previously realised. The paper was titled, Plant Biochemistry, an Onion Enzyme that Makes the Eyes Water, and was published in Nature. It used to be thought that the enzyme that makes you cry when you slice onions was made from the compound alanase that gives onions their flavour, but this study shows it's made from a totally different enzyme. This means it should be possible to grow onions that still taste good, but don't make you cry. The archaeology prize went to Brian Crandall and Peter Stahl, for parboiling a dead shrew and then swallowing the shrew without chewing and then carefully examining everything excreted during subsequent days all so they could see which bones would dissolve inside the human digestive system and which bones would not. Their paper was titled Human Digestive Effects on a Mammalian Skeleton was published in the Journal of Archaeological Science. The Ig Peace Prize went to Alexander Lukashenko, President of Belarus, for making it illegal to applaud in public and to the Belarus State Police for arresting a one-armed man for applauding. The man was subsequently found guilty by a judge and fined $200. He found this a hardship because he's on a disability pension because he only has one arm. The Belarus Police have also arrested a mute man for shouting anti-governmental slogans and who could blame him? The Probability Prize went to Bert Tolkamp and his team for making two related discoveries. First, that the longer a cow has been lying down, the more likely that the cow will soon stand up. And second, that once a cow stands up, you can't easily predict how soon that cow will lie down again. The paper is titled, Are Cows More Likely to Lie Down the Longer They Stand? and was published in Applied Animal Behaviour Science. And finally, the ignoble Public Health Prize went to Cassian Banganada and his team for the medical techniques described in the report Surgical Management of an Epidemic of Penile Amputations in Siam Techniques which they recommend, except in cases where the amputated penis had been partially eaten by a duck Their paper, Surgical Management of an Epidemic of Penile Amputations in Siam was published in the American Journal of Surgery As Richard Feynman put it, science is like sex Sometimes something useful comes out, but that's not the reason we're doing it. You can read regular stories of surprising science at www.improbable.com. And now this week's three-minute thesis from the UTS Science Faculty. Students have three minutes to explain their research to educated laymen with only one slide, and a chance at the Tran-Tasman competition. Here's Jennifer Clark with her research, Living on the Edge, Climate Stress in an Intertidal Micro-Alga.
0: In early 2011, an unexpected marine heat wave increased ocean temperatures by five degrees, eliminating a prominent habitat-forming seaweed from hundreds of kilometres of coastline. To put this into perspective, if average ocean temperatures are to increase in the next 20 years by one degree, 70 species of seaweeds could be eliminated or displaced in Australia. To some, this is no loss. It's just a slimy seaweed, right? To many organisms, This is a loss of a home, food, refuge from predators, shelter from Australia's sweltering heat, and to many ocean-loving Australians like you and I, it's a loss of our beautiful coastlines and its marine biodiversity, as well as trillions of dollars worth of ecosystem services. Australia is unique as it has the most seaweed species in the world, however global warming is threatening this. Populations of intertidal seaweeds, such as Ciscai, Homozii, or are already living close to their thermal limits, making them particularly vulnerable to global warming. If populations are to persist, there needs to be enough thermally tolerant individuals that are able to pass on the genes to the next generation. Understanding how marine species will respond to climate change is critical for effective management and conservation of biodiversity. However, not much is known about how the underlying genetics relates to performance of uh, intertidal seaweed under climate stress. Therefore, my research aims to determine, firstly, how does the underlying genetics uh, relate to the performance of homozyobanxii populations, or the health, and whether this declines towards the edges of its ranges. So how will I do this? First, by looking at multiple populations of homozyobanxii and determining the health and reproduction of individuals and um, adults, um, plants will be subjected to different degrees of environmental stress to determine whether plant shape relates to plant health. Finally, I'll use the molecular markers to determine the relatedness of individuals. The more related an individ- the population is, the more chance that their offspring will be inbred and will perform poorly. So far, results have shown that plant shape and position on the shore actually help relieve thermal stress really thermal stress and water loss. My project will be significant because it'll identify homozyre populations that are already stressed and poor health. And this will also aid managers to effectively plan areas to conserve. This way we can retain our coastlines and ecosystems for future uh, generations. Thank you.
1: (laughs) That was Jennifer Clark, With a three minute thesis from the University of Technology Sydney. You can find out more about the three minute thesis competition at www.threeminutethesis.org. Gee, you're still allowed to talk about climate change in Australia? I guess it's okay why the government's not listening anyway. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, and gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions. To science at diffusionradio.com That's science at diffusionradio.com And please do send me an email So I know you're listening And you'd like to hear more episodes Please like our Facebook page And leave a comment I produce Diffusion Which is broadcast around Australia On the Community Radio Network And to Triple H in Hornsby Karengai And syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station Ask your local radio station To broadcast Diffusion Subscribe to the podcast Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.